Good morning, church. How are you? Wasn't Seth fantastic? Yeah, come on. I, I said this in the first hour, but I mean it. Go take a nap during this. This is the last chance you'll have for a while. My name is Ben Purvis. I am the Minister of Discipleship and Young Adults here at First McKinney. Grateful to be here with you and grateful to be here on Graduate Sunday. I love Sundays like this in our church uh, and I love it for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, I wasn't raised in church and became a believer in high school and I was actually a senior when God called me to ministry. I didn't know what that meant but that was a special time. I had a youth minister that helped me discern and figure out what God was doing in my life. And so I'm grateful for the student ministry here at this church. I love Grant. I just don't want you to tell him I said that. Um, also, I was a student minister for over 10 years. I was 21 years old when I became the part-time student minister at Hollinger's Island Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. And they paid me $100 a week, and it was awesome. <laughs> and it was like the Wild West. that we, we didn't have a youth building or a budget or a youth minister that knew what he was doing, but we had a lot of fun. We got to be friends with, there was a church down the road uh, and there was a student minister that had a similar size youth group, and, but they had a gym. And so we were always at their place playing games. One evening, our youth groups were playing volleyball together and I was playing the net. Why are you laughing? <laughs> that wasn't even a joke. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. I am not built to play the net. And in front of me was a rival youth group kid, 17 years old, senior in high school, varsity baseball player, and he was chirping at me the entire time we played. This may shock you. I don't have a very good vertical. And I had had enough of his shenanigans. So I thought, like any good 21-year-old youth leader should, hey, the next time he goes up for the ball, I'm going to rush the net and I'm going to catch him in the air because that'll show him. <laughs> At least that's what I thought I was going to do. I, had, I was not anticipating what would happen when you run into a net and how difficult adding a net is to holding on to a human body. And so when I ran into the net, I hit this kid and his legs go in the air and he falls flat on his back on the court. Now, I, yeah, I know, it gets worse. <laughs> if this was professional wrestling, this was a spear. And so I hit this kid, he falls down, and he starts crying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you do? Immediately, his parents come out of the bleachers. Who hurt our, our, our son? 
I did. All right, who's in charge of this other youth group? <laughs> also me. Do you have any idea how humiliating it is to rightfully get chewed out in front of your youth group as a student minister because you hurt another kid because he was better than you at volleyball? <laughs> Thankfully, he was all right, wasn't hurt. After about 10 minutes, parents calmed down. I called my pastor. He didn't fire me. It was great. Um, that was 17 years ago, and I still think about how that is one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. And so all of this is really just to confess that, Brother James, if you happen to watch this message sometime, I'm still very sorry about what I did. We are going to see a lot of humiliation in our passage Today, we are continuing the book of Daniel, and it has been said that Daniel is to the Old Testament what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament. In short, when you read both books, you find some wild and crazy things that happen in this book. And in chapter 4, where we are this morning, there's no shortage of wild things. And so before we get there, I want to set it up in this way. We've been at this for several weeks, and some of you may be new either to church or to the series, and I, I want to sort of bring you up to speed. There are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 4, you could kind of consider them a part 1 because King Nebuchadnezzar is sort of the, the central villain in the text in all four chapters. Today, we will finish up part 1, and after this, we will never hear from King Nebuchadnezzar again. If you're new, let me state the obvious. King Nebuchadnezzar is not a good dude. He was the king of Babylon when they attacked Jerusalem, and ultimately, he's the reason the kingdom fell. After this takeover, there would not be a nation of Israel again until it is formally recognized in 1948, which is only 75 years ago. The work that Nebuchadnezzar does here in the book of Daniel will end up spanning over 2,500 years. In chapter 1, he overwhelms Jerusalem and he plunders the temple of God. He takes Daniel along with 10,000 of the best from the kingdom of Judah and deports them to Babylon. Quick side note, Daniel was approximately 15 years old when this happened. He would never return to his homeland again. Later in chapter 2, the king has a dream that he doesn't like, and then he threatens to kill all of his wise men if they can't interpret the dream that he refuses to tell them what the dream is. Real logical guy that Nebuchadnezzar is. Ultimately, Daniel interprets the dream, wins favor with the king. And then in chapter 3, recently Justin taught on this, very famous passage, is where the king creates a golden statue that everyone should worship. And then when Daniel's friends do not, he tries to kill them by throwing them into a 
fiery furnace. And so we find ourselves this morning on the heels of the whole fiery furnace debacle. The outline of chapter 4 is simple, but it is not easy. It is book-ended, so it begins and ends with praise. And then in the middle, we will find a dream with an interpretation, a humiliation, and then a restoration. We're going to use those sort of big chunks as sort of the way that we organize our thoughts this morning. We won't read every verse, but we will take the entire chapter. As we dive in, you may notice two things different in Daniel 4 that we have not seen yet. Daniel 4 marks a dramatic shift both in writing style and in the character of the king. I'm going to warn you, it's going to get wild. Let's look. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. All right, let's, let's stop there, because I could not get past this point in my study. Nebuchadnezzar was a man of many military conquests. Before he was king, he was actually a war general. He had battled all of his life. He plundered kingdoms. He was known for his sword, not his mercy. And yet, beginning in verse 1, he says, Peace be multiplied to you. It doesn't stop there. In verse 2, he says, he uses this phrase, it seems good to me, which can literally be translated in Aramaic, pleasure. If you have an NIV, it translates verse two, it is my pleasure to show the signs and wonders of the Most High God. Do you see what that means? If you hear nothing else in this sermon, I want you to get this one point. This proves Chick-fil-A is of scripture. <laughs> I'm so glad some of y'all laughed because it did not land in the first hour. <laughs> Whew, no. This means the king is willfully and joyfully praising God. And did you also notice there is a narrative shift? This is a first person account. Go back and look at Daniel's one, two, three. You don't see first person like this. Daniel four actually reads like it is an epistle of the New Testament, except this is not Peter or John or Mark that is writing and talking. This is a human trafficking, murderous pagan king with a God complex writing the Bible. That is fascinating. And this is just the beginning. So 
so where's the change? How is he praising the Most High God when a chapter ago he was commissioning himself to be worshipped? The transformation begins with his dream. And so as we look, I want you to see King Nebuchadnezzar's dream presents God's problem. Verses 6 through 27 is this conversation between the king and Daniel. The king has a second dream. He calls upon his wise men. They can't answer. So he brings in Daniel again and he explains what happens. And rather than reading all of the verses, I want to give you the high points. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there is this massive cosmic tree spreading out over the earth. I think we actually have a picture. I don't know if it actually looked like this, but you get the idea. It's very Garden of Eden-like. It says that this tree, you can see it from anywhere in the world and it reaches to heaven. It says that the birds and the animals find shade and nourishment under it and that it is seemed to be good to them. Starts out simple enough. Later on, Scripture says there is a holy watcher that demands that this tree is cut down and that they take the stump and they bind it with iron and bronze. And then if that is not bizarre enough, this tree turned stump is then given the mind and actions of an animal. Even more bizarre, this tree turned stump is considered to be human-like with the words that it reads around the text. And then this human-like stump receives the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. All of this, Scripture says, in verse 17, is to prove a single point. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. God's kingdom is set over the lowliest. I'm going to show you what that means at the end. The king is rightfully upset with the dream. He brings it to Daniel, who is also dismayed by the dream. And even though this is not always the best thing to do for your boss, he, Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, King, this tree that is cut down, that is conquered, is you. So now what do we do? I want you to see that humility is the key to walking with God and that he takes the sin of pride seriously. Now let me show you something that's pretty, pretty I think it's pretty cool in the text. Nebuchadnezzar's dream intentionally mirrors his pride as king. Now stay with me on this. I want you to think back to Justin's message from a couple of weeks ago or think about what you know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the whole fiery furnace. If you think about the beginning of that passage, what ushers in 
people falling down and worshiping this statue. Well, Scripture says that at the sound of music, that was how you were supposed to know it was time to bow down. I want you to see a few similarities, though. In Daniel 3, there is this statue, this golden statue. It's, it's built to the king. It was put on a plane. It was the highest structure that they had. And it's supposed to symbolize that there is nothing above the king. What do we see in Daniel 4? There is a tree. And it says that that tree reaches to heaven. In both instances, Daniel 3 and Daniel 4, it represents the king Nebuchadnezzar and it represents his kingdom. Interestingly enough, there are only three times in all of Daniel where this Aramaic word proclaim is used. Two of the three are in Daniel 3 and in Daniel 4. In Daniel 3, it says that there is a heralder and his job was to proclaim loudly that at the sound of the music, you will bow down and worship the king. In his dream, there is a holy watcher, which is the same figurative language it uses, by the way, in Daniel 3 in the fiery furnace when it says that, didn't we throw in three of them, but the fourth looks like the son of the gods? And in Daniel 4, this holy watcher loudly proclaims that the tree is cut down. So look at and think about that imagery. In Daniel 3, there's a proclamation in what happens. People worship the king. In Daniel 4, there's a proclamation, and yet it is the king who must worship. There is no way, I think, that this king didn't know this dream was about him. And like so many of us, when we are confronted with our pride, do you know what he does? Nothing. After all, it's not that big of a deal. After giving the bad news, Daniel ends his words with a solemn warning. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Daniel exhorts the king to avert the tragedy by acting immediately. And he resembles the classic prophets and that there is this contingent element on the prophecy. In other words, if the king would change his behavior, he may not receive the judgment. The writer urges the changing of a lifestyle it is not by good deeds that the king can save himself, but by changing his way of life, the king will be demonstrating his acceptance with the truth of Daniel's words. Our life must show that we are in line with God's word. This judgment is avoidable for the king, but yet he does nothing. And so while his dream presents God's problem, King Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation proves God's promise. In verse 28, it says this. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, 
At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. A humiliating sight for the most important man of the biggest kingdom in the known world. We see another narrative shift. We see a switch to third person, almost like Daniel is picking up the pen for a moment. And what we see in this passage is utter judgment and the execution of God's word being fulfilled. I feel that some of you need to hear this this morning. What God says he will do. And it's easy to believe that because it has not happened yet, that it won't happen. We have said it from the onset of this series, the book of Daniel is about how God is in control of those who are in control. And scripture says that there is a coming day where every one of us will confess Jesus as Lord, where every knee will bow, every tongue confess and that we will be brought under the submission of our king everyone will be humbled before him but at what cost for king nebuchadnezzar it cost him literally everything but his life now i want to highlight one bit of information that if you aren't paying attention you can easily overlook did you notice when the king was humbled Verse 29 says it happened at the end of 12 months. There was an entire year between his dream and God's word coming true. For the king, it was easy to dismiss God's word when he does not see the results. How many days, weeks, or months went by before he just simply chalked up this dream to some sort of celestial indigestion? Historically, Nebuchadnezzar was Babylon's greatest king. He was their version of King David. He was the greatest, had the greatest kingdom in the known world at that time. So much power, influence, respect. It's really easy to think that can never happen to me. Sometimes, there is a gap between God's promise and his fulfillment. And how you mind that gap says what you truly believe about God.
it becomes increasingly easy to believe that because you've gotten away with a behavior for so long, God may not be serious about that in your life. Pride is so damaging because it puts you in the place that is designed for God. In his heart, the king lived for his glory. It was about his kingdom. And here's what's nuts. If you go back and look at Daniel 1, 2, and 3, there are several times in that passage where when he has something blow up in his face, he does show respect to God. He shows respect to the God of the Bible, but he doesn't honor him as king. And I think what happens is that we will tend to confuse respect for God with honor for God. And while in this passage, there was lots of times Nebuchadnezzar respected who God was, he still never honored him because what his life was about was about what he wanted and his glory. And here in this text, I love what it says. It was all snatched from him in an instant while the words were still on his lips. The madness sets in. The greatest man in the kingdom would become less than every other man in the kingdom. He would become an animal or at least have the mind and actions of one. And for everything, all the bad this man had done, plundering kingdoms, murdering people, trying to throw people into a furnace, building a statue to himself, none of that is what caused his judgment. None of that. His madness would come from a prideful thought. And can I say that I believe that your humiliation will not likely come from some grandiose public disgrace, but from the thoughts that you have when you think you're alone. How long are you going to hide that addiction? How long are you going to walk into this church week after week and act like you've got all of your junk together? How long are you going to keep making your team at work think you're the smartest person on the team? You can build a lifetime of pride and see it crumble in an instant. The conquering king would now be conquered. He would be brought under authority in his own kingdom. How humiliating. He would lose his glory, experience the shame of an animal. He would have the perspective of the lowest man in all of Babylon. Those who feared his power would pity his existence. He became a picture of sorrow and shame for seven seasons. In essence, he would be put in his rightful place. God deserves your glory and honor and praise, and he will have it from you. But what will it cost? When you think about your life, do you care that the people around you don't have a relationship with Christ? 
When you examine your prayer life, does it reveal a heart that is completely in submission to God and his ways and his kingdom and his wants? Or does it truly believe what you want? Does it reveal that all you really want to have happen in your life are the things that are going to make you happy and give you pleasure? And it would be really easy this morning to stop at this point in the passage. After all, this is a solemn warning against pride. Either humble yourselves or you yourself will be humbled. If we did that, we would miss perhaps the greatest blessing in this entire passage because look with me. King Nebuchadnezzar's restoration proclaims God's providence. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Verse 36, and at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. We see a narrative shift back to first person and we hear the words of a broken, humble man. The result of a humble heart is always praise and adoration to God. What seems like an awful display of God's judgment is an awesome display of God's kindness. But how can we look to Nebuchadnezzar's life and say that this is a display of kindness? Because the humiliation suffered is ultimately for his benefit. When his reason is returned, he praises God. He agrees with the Lord. Again, go back and look through chapters 1, 2, and 3. He never agrees that God's way is best, but now he's saying God's way is the only way. Once Nebuchadnezzar honors the Lord, meaning he sees him as his king, he is restored. This is not the same type of ruinous story we see in the Old Testament and other parts of Scripture. This is not the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah where God's judgment comes and destroys the city. This is not the Tower of Babel where he confuses the languages and the city is ultimately left. No, if anything, the words here in Daniel 4 reads more like a restoration of Job. Every phrase, every sentence is written with calculated purpose. Look at verse 34. It says the king would, quote, lift his eyes to heaven 
And when he does this, his reason would be returned. No less than seven times in the Old Testament is this phrase used. And each time there is an association of, quote, lifting one's eyes with a profound revelation from God. For example, Genesis 22, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac. And scripture says that as he lifts the knife to kill his son, he also lifts his eyes and sees a ram caught in the thicket. In Joshua 5, it says that Joshua lifts his eyes and encounters the Lord outside the city of Jericho. In Psalm 121, David writes, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And I could go on, but you get the point. When Nebuchadnezzar recognizes his place before the Lord, then and only then is he restored. The Apostle Paul would recognize this. In Romans 12, he would say, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. When you embrace God's place for you, he will supernaturally work in you and through you. One of the best things that we see in this passage is that there is no pride so egregious that it disqualifies you from receiving God's grace. And this morning, I am begging you to not let pride keep you from God's best. I mean, think about it in this way. What is the worst thing that would happen if you truly humbled yourself? If you went to the office tomorrow and said, you know what, guys, I don't know everything. Do you think your people are going to think worse of you? I like it. If you really came clean about the junk that you're holding on to, do you think that would go worse for you? Nebuchadnezzar was so afraid to lose his kingdom. And this is the paradox that we see in pride. He was so afraid of losing his kingdom that he needed to show everyone what he could do. Yet by showing everyone what he could do and being prideful, he ultimately lost his kingdom. Yet the moment that he humbled himself and, and realized he was not the king that was in control, he actually gets his kingdom back. And so can I tell you that if you're in this place today and you're holding on to whatever it is, a sin, an addiction, a thought of, I don't even know if Jesus can truly be king. Do you really think by holding on to that and not sharing it, it's going to be worse for you? The one thing that you don't want to do is the one thing that I think God is begging you to do to live a spirit-filled life. Think back with me. Remember verse 17, the holy watcher in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The reason for all of this to happen was for Nebuchadnezzar to know that God will give his kingdom to the lowliest. And in verse 36, he is restored to an even greater kingdom. Why? Because he is now the lowest man in the kingdom. I don't know if you've ever had a, a great rise and a great fall, but going from the king of all of Babylon to eating grass for probably seven years, it takes the cake.
So what do we do with this? So what? We have a man who got what he deserved. Whenever I hear someone preach, I ask that question. So what do we want to do with this? This morning, I am asking you to lift up your eyes and see that the story of Nebuchadnezzar is actually a portrait of Christ Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar curses or is cursed for his sin. He loses his glory, has the mind and actions of an animal, and bears the guilt and shame that comes with that. He would then humble himself, becoming the lowest man in the kingdom, and then exalted to a kingdom higher than the one that he had. And in Jesus, we see him cursed for our sin. We see that Jesus willingly gave up his glory when he stepped foot into this earth and then he became an animal. Scripture says he was the lamb of God bearing its shame for us. Philippians 2 says that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross which coincidentally enough Paul in Galatians 3 would call the cross a tree. Similar imagery that we see in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And what does Jesus do after dying on the cross? He is ultimately exalted to the right hand of the Father. Lift up your eyes. There is a real king and there is a real kingdom. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He conquered the grave. And if you this morning would lift up your eyes and humble yourself to make Jesus your king, Scripture says you then can be exalted into his kingdom. I implore you, don't wait 12 months to humble yourself. In this passage this morning, we will see Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It presents God's problem. His humiliation proves God's promise and his restoration proclaims God's providence. And at first glance, Daniel 4 looks like a story of destruction and humiliation, but it is actually a story that is for our pleasure. Because what I hope you see today is that those who would humble themselves like Nebuchadnezzar can be exalted like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, today, God, your word is true. And God, I recognize your goodness and your faithfulness. And Lord, I've struggled with this passage of asking myself, am I living a life truly submitted to you. And so, Father, I pray now for those in our congregation to wrestle with that idea. And Lord, it's difficult because in some ways, as we read the story, I don't want to be like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to be someone so arrogant of your ways, but yet with what we see in this passage, I also want to be like him. I want to be someone that looks at you as only my source of one who's in control. Lord, today, may we walk away from this message knowing that even back a couple thousand years ago, Lord, you were setting the stage for your son to come on the scene.
that God, that we can be a part of his kingdom. And Lord, would you call people into your kingdom today? Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.